Yesterday marked the 20th anniversary of September 11th. And for you that are not Americans, I don't know if that means anything to you, but for those of us from America, that was a significant day. Uh, it was a, a, a day of fear, of worry, of unknown. But it was also a day marked with, with courage uh, and with uh, a, I might say, a revitalization of what for us as Americans might say the American spirit. It's something that brought us together as Americans. And maybe here in Norway there might be similar events that you could identify that mark a day that brings Norwegians together or an experience that does... Um, but whatever the case, on that day, it, it was a great illustration of the uncertainty of life. September 11th, as uh, Deborah and I were reminded of as we watched a documentary last night with our kids, who were obviously not born at that time, um, it was a beautiful fall day, clear blue skies, it was about as, as pretty as it comes. I remember where I was. Deborah remembers where she was. It was a beautiful fall day. It's about as, across the whole country, about as fantastic as weather can be. And in a moment, everything changed. And we watched with, with horror of thousands of people dying, uh, being suffocated, people literally jumping out of the towers, people being crushed to death by the falling towers. And life was suddenly and unexpectedly brought to an end. And that is the nature of life. I think of Psalm 90, as I mentioned earlier in the service, teach me to number my days that I might get a heart of wisdom. And John the Evangelist is very aware of the brevity of life too. And that's why he has written the Gospel of John. That we might have eternal life. That none of us should perish. And the way that John is, is seeking to give us faith is by displaying the glory of Christ. Through many signs and then through the chief sign of his death and resurrection. And last week, we looked at the Jesus of history, and John was laboring to show us who Jesus really is. This week, we turn and look at the Christ of faith, because what is absolutely essential for us to know is it is not enough to have an intellectual knowledge of who Jesus is. That will get us nowhere on the day of judgment. We also must believe in his name. Christ came that we might have faith in him. So last week we looked at the Jesus of history. This week we will look at the Christ of faith. And I'm intentionally using what uh, these phrases that have often been used by liberals and turning it on its head. Uh, the, old, the old liberals or modernists, 
and I, I'm not talking politically here, I'm talking theologically, would distinguish the Jesus of history from the Christ of faith. And they would say that the Jesus of history was just a man. And the Christ of faith is this just spiritual reality. I'm turning that on its head as John is because Jesus is God. And that our faith is not some kind of ambiguous faith in some spiritual Christ idea. But it's in the Jesus of Nazareth who was the Christ. The Jesus of history is the Christ of faith. They are one and the same person. And so in this section of John, John now gives us and shows us and displays to us the ramifications and the responses of various people to the Christ of faith and responses of belief and responses of unbelief. He shows us in both tragic and glorious terms the response of people to Christ. And that's what we're going to look at this week. Last week Jesus was in Cana and we saw the first seven we saw the first seven days of Jesus' ministry. Now he turns to Jerusalem and Judea, the very epicenter of God's redemptive activities and where the people of God were waiting for the consummation of Israel. And we're going to see what happens as Christ is exalted. The theme that holds this whole section together from chapter 2, 13 to verse 4, 2, besides the geographical bounding that John gives us, is the theme of the exaltation of Christ. So we are going to look at three things this morning. First, we're going to look at Christ's threefold exaltation. Then we will look at Christ's threefold fulfillment of major Old Testament expectations. And then we will look at the twofold response to the Christ of faith. So we will take these in order. First, Christ's threefold exaltation. Three times in this text, Christ is exalted. Um, for the sake of your note-taking, we can divide, and you might want to just write down these divisions because I'm going to refer to them several times. Uh, we're going to work thematically rather than kind of verse by verse through this text. Uh, a rough breakdown of this text is chapter 2, 13 to 25. Chapter 2, 13 to 25. And then chapter 3, 1 to 21. Chapter 3, 1 to 21. And then chapter 3, 22 to 4, 2. Chapter 3, 22 to 4, 2. And I'll refer to these three sections in all three points this morning. So first, Christ's threefold exaltation. John picks up the narrative of Jesus as uh, the time of the Passover comes around. And so Jesus goes to Jerusalem and he enters the temple and he is filled with disgust. What should be a place of holiness, a place of sober sanctity, 
had become a place of greed and commercialism. Greed and commercialism. People would come from all over the ancient Near East, the Jews, to worship at the great feasts of Israel, including the Passover. And they would come and they would need animals to sacrifice. They, they may need to exchange uh, their currencies for uh, the, the currency in Jerusalem and exchange money. Uh, but rather than simply being a non for not-for-profit service, it became a place where greedy people made money on people trying to worship the living God. And Jesus was filled with wrath and disgust. And so he turned tables and drove them out. And the Jews said, Why are you doing this? What sign? What sign do you give us for these things? And in verse 19, Jesus answered them and he said, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. This is the first example of Christ's exaltation. And they said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it in three days? And they were completely ignorant. They thought he was talking about Herod's temple. But he was talking about the temple of his body. And here we see the death and resurrection of Christ foreshadowed. I will raise it up. This is this first of three exaltations in this text. We move to the second section of the text, 3.1 to 21. And here Jesus is approached by a man named Nicodemus. He was one of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the people, the experts that everybody looked to. If they could do documentaries in those days, it would be the Pharisee, you know, that the, the news journalists would interview to give the official truth on some theological doctrine uh, or point of uh, debate. And Nicodemus comes, uh, and Jesus point blank tells him, you do not receive me later on. So it seems in the context that he's in some kind of skeptical or um, saying this with an ulterior motive. He says, we know you are a teacher come from God. For who else could do these things? But he's got an ulterior motive. And Jesus answered him and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And, and Nicodemus goes on, Well, how can this be? How can a man be born again? And Nicodemus shows his ignorance of these things. And Jesus says, You're the teacher of Israel. And you do not understand these things. He said, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And then later on, he goes, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And now we see a second example of Christ's exaltation here in chapter 3, 13. No one who descended from heaven, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven the Son of Man. 
And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And so we've seen in the first section, I will raise it up. And in this section, the Son of Man must be lifted up. And we see atonement foreshadowed. We come to the third section of this passage and the third of these exaltations of Christ in 3.22. We see uh, Jesus now moved to the Judean countryside and John the Baptist's disciples are watching and, and they appear to be a little bit jealous because all of a sudden, John, I mean, John the Baptist used to have a good following. But now all of a sudden they're following Jesus instead. And so John's disciples approach him. And John says in verse 25, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. And John goes on to explain, You must remember, I am not the Christ. I'm the one who came before him. And then in verse 31, it says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. So three times in this passage of Jesus' time in Jerusalem and Judea, he is exalted before the people. He says, I will raise it up, referring to his body. He says, the Son of Man must be lifted up, referring to his atonement. And that Christ is above all. And this ties directly into John's theme to show us the glory of Christ. This is the glory of the Christ. He will die for his people and be raised on the third day. He will be the atonement. He will be the protection for God's people from the wrath of God, even as Moses lifted up the servant serpent in the desert so that the people would be saved from the curse that God had unleashed on his own people for their rebelliousness. And that because Christ comes from heaven, he is above all things. But then the question is, what does this threefold exaltation mean? And that brings us to our second point. Now we will look at Christ's threefold fulfillment of Old Testament expectations. A threefold fulfillment of Old Testament expectations. So what did these three exaltation points, these three raising up moments mean? What did they signify to those who would have heard Jesus and those who would have read John's words as he writes? What did this mean 
everything that Jesus said in these moments of exaltation point to loaded Old Testament concepts, loaded themes, uh, as it were. These, these themes that the people of God had great expectations for. And we're going to look at that here now. So in this first section of John, from 2.13 to 25, where Jesus says, uh, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. Jesus is pointing to the loaded concept of the temple. The temple, all of God's people, were waiting for the restoration of the temple. The restoration of the temple to its former glory. Remember, when the second temple was built in the days of Zerubbabel, after Solomon's temple was destroyed by Babylon, when the temple was rebuilt, they looked up and the elders who were still around, who saw Solomon's temple, they looked at Zerubbabel's temple, which is what we call the second temple. They were looking at that temple and they wept. Because it paled in comparison to the glory of Solomon's temple. And they wept. But they also knew that the prophet Ezekiel had prophesied of a greater temple to come. Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48. And this was going to be a grand and lavish and amazing temple. And the glory of the Lord would come back over the Mount of Olives to enter it once more. But what John is showing us and what Jesus is saying to us is he is the temple. He is the temple. Remember back to the prologue when John says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That Greek word means tabernacled. God tabernacled among us. He is the temple. The reason we can be called the temple is because we are united to Christ. But Jesus is the temple, capital T. So when Jesus says, I will raise it up, he is calling himself the temple. When we move to chapter 3, 1 to 21, where Jesus says the Son of Man must be lifted up, we come to another loaded concept, and that is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. Every Israelite was waiting for God to return and to establish their kingdom and power and might, that the pagans would forever be rid of the promised land and that they would have supremacy in the world. And Daniel says such things in his book. For example, in Daniel 2.20, which is a great verse to remember during government elections, that Daniel says, Blessed be uh, Uh, Blessed be God, to him belongs uh, wisdom. He is the one who removes kings and sets up kings and gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have 
understanding. And in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar himself says that the kingdom belongs to God. The kingdom belongs to God. In chapter 4, verses 34 and 35, Nebuchadnezzar says, For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? So even Nebuchadnezzar himself, the the most powerful king in the planet, says that to God, the God of Israel, his is the dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. And God's people are waiting for the day of the Lord. They're waiting for the prophecy in Malachi 4.5 that's fulfilled in John the Baptist that Elijah would come before the day of the Lord. The great day when God would revisit His people and judge His enemies and bring the kingdom to earth. And what John has written here And what Jesus is saying is that he is the king. And not only that, he is the one who purchases admittance to the kingdom by his blood, as the son will be raised up for the salvation of his people. But more than that, we also see that Jesus is the one who gives citizenship to those whom he wills. The reason Jesus needs to be raised up, as we will learn later in John, is so that he can send the Holy Spirit. And it is the Spirit that goes where he wills to make people born again. People born, as we read in the prologue, not by the will of man or the will of flesh, but by God. And speaking of that giving of the Spirit, we also read in verses 34 and following, For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he, speaking of Christ, gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. It is the Son who gives the Spirit without measure to those whom He wills. He is the King and He is the one who gives admittance to the kingdom of God. The third loaded concept of this threefold fulfillment of Old Testament expectations is the concept of the bridegroom. The bridegroom. Today we just simply say the groom. We read in our Old Testament scripture reading this morning from Isaiah 54, and Israel was waiting for the Lord to come back as their husband as their husband. 
in Isaiah 54, verses 4 to 8, it says, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And down in verse 7, For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. And when John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, asked John about what's going on with more following Jesus than John the Baptist anymore, John explicitly refers to him as the bridegroom. In John 3, 28 and following, You yourselves bear witness that I have said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's, bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So Jesus is the divine bridegroom. And again, remembering in John's theme, Jesus is not just a man. He is God himself. The fulfillment of Isaiah 54, where it says, Yahweh is your husband. We now know that Jesus is Yahweh. That's the personal name of God. He is the husband of God's people. So not only have we seen thus far Christ's threefold exaltation. I will raise it up. The Son of Man must be lifted up. And Christ is above all. We've now understood the meaning of that threefold expectation in reference to the longing of God's Old Testament people, in reference to the temple, the kingdom of God, and the bridegroom. And now in this narrative, we need to reflect upon the twofold response to this Christ of faith. A twofold response. There's a response of belief and there's a response of unbelief. And this will come home to us at the end. So let's look at this twofold response to the Christ of faith. In chapter 2, verses 13 to 25, in this first section, the Jews, the Pharisees, the money changers, view Jesus with skepticism. Indeed, we know from, because we know the story from beginning to end with In fact, they view him with derision and hatred and they will eventually seek to kill him and will succeed for a time. And yet at the same time, in chapter 2, verse 22, his disciples believe. John says, When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So the Jews and the money changers are filled with wrath. 
while the disciples believe. In the second section, in 3, 1 to 21, Nicodemus is an example of ignorance and skepticism. The very intellectual elites, the religious elites that should know these things, were not only of ignorant of them, they were skeptical of them, and they rejected Christ. They rejected Christ. As Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. But on the other hand, we learn that those who are born of the Spirit are the only ones that can see and that can believe. And that Jesus says, as Moses in verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And thirdly, in the third section, how about John the Baptist's disciples? Well, they seem a bit jealous of what's going on. Why are they all now going that way? For a time, they had a great following. And how about the Jews and the Pharisees? There's growing hostility, in fact, so much so that Jesus leaves the region once more. In chapter 4, the opening verses of chapter 4, which are transitional verses to the next section of John, it says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So we see jealousy and growing hostility. But on the other hand, John the Baptist gives us a grand illustration of joyful faith. When he says, this joy, now that Christ has come, this joy of mine is complete. This joy of mine is complete. And at the end of each of these major sections on the lifting up of Jesus, we have a call to faith. We have a call to faith. In chapter 222, we have this call to faith through the disciples who remembered what Jesus said and they believed in the scripture and in the word that Jesus had spoken. In 3.14, after Jesus talks about the Son of Man needing to be lift up, it's that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And in 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So at the end of these lifting up, there's a call to faith, but there's also shocking and tragic examples of rejection and unbelief. And now I want to close by bringing this home to each one of us. At the heart of of this section of John, really in the middle of this section of John, in this time, in this early time in Jerusalem and Judea, 
lays perhaps the most famous verse in the entire Bible. And here John the Evangelist lays out the reality of salvation and condemnation in reference to how we respond to the Christ of faith. And we have this right in the middle of the text, verse 316 to 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And at the heart of Christ's exaltation, at the heart of Christ's fulfilling the great and glorious expectations of Israel lies the reality of whether or not you will accept God's love in Christ. And here in this original context, whether or not Israel would accept or reject God's love for them in Christ Jesus. Your eternal destiny, my eternal destiny, hangs in the balance on how we respond to the Christ of faith. And if we reject Christ, we stand eternally condemned. In fact, we are condemned already if we reject the Christ of faith. But if we embrace the love of God in Christ, we shall not perish, but have eternal life. So we read the end of John. John says, I write these things to you that you may believe in Jesus and have life in his name. Christ's exaltation comes through the humiliation of the cross but then the glory of the resurrection and the ascension to the right hand of the Father. And for those who believe in him these glorious signs of exaltation signify our very life eternal. For those who reject is a confirmation of the condemnation that they already have. So I exhort each one of you to believe and embrace the Christ of faith. And if you are still worried if he will accept you, well, that will lead us to our text for next time.
as we learn about Jesus who is the Savior of sinners. But until then, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. And may we all be found to be born again.